I'm Alan Barr, and this is Radio Free RPG. Hello, I'm Alan Barr, and welcome to Radio Free RPG. Today, I'm joined by my guest, J.D. Kennedy. Hi, Kennedy. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Doing pretty good. It's finally cooling down here, so able to do some outside work today, which felt good. So, Kennedy is a longtime collaborator and friend of mine who has worked with Gallonite Games, as well as a well-versed and well-traveled sort of scribe for hire in the RPG industry at large. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with gaming and what folks might know you from? I've worked in the industry for over 20 years. I've worked for, I've worked <laughs> trying to pick which company to start with. Yeah. I work for Modiphius Entertainment and I work on the Star Trek Adventures line. I also work for Renegade Game Studios and I worked on My Little Pony, Trans or Transformers, but more recently uh, on Werewolf 5th Edition. And then um, I've also worked um, with Third Eye Games and we did uh, Ninja Crusade 2nd Edition and Pip Core Book, Core Rules. And then up. Uh, a lot with Gallant Knight Studios. And yeah, just a little, I joked uh, with a friend of mine, you can find my books uh, almost anywhere at Gen Con. But yeah, that, that's pretty much just how, to, how I would sum it up. Okay. So, you know, you've, you've listed a few well-known IPs, you know, and I have to know you've worked on Star Trek. You've worked on a variety of White Wolf related IPs, which are, well-known in the gaming industry. Uh, do you, is there a reason you enjoy working on intellectual IPs rather than maybe generating your own all the time, right? Now, obviously, I think as a creative, we all enjoy making our own mm-hmm. IPs and settings and information, right? Like, let's not pretend otherwise. But some creatives enjoy working in other people's sandboxes more than others. So is there a reason you find this enjoyable? It's really hard to say. I mean, from a purely like just selfish perspective, it's sometimes it's just really cool to work on the thing you grew up with. I mean, so just to give context with like working on like Star Trek, my mom introduced me to Star Trek. And uh, I remember she'd get off work, she'd come home, and I would sneak out of bed because I was four years old. And we would just sit down and watch the, the latest rerun of Star Trek The Next Generation which I still remember was on uh, Fox 59 here in Indianapolis. And it's just, it's just great to get to add to, I guess, the whole, like the lore and the canon in your own ways. And I know that it, when it comes to working on like the, the RPGs, you know, our stuff is not as official as say the actual TV show, but sure. it, it's, it's kind of rad to get to just, you know, to add your own little thing to a section of the Star Trek universe and to have old school, like, you know, Trekkies flip through the books and be like, that's so cool. I love how you expanded on this. And yeah, it's really rewarding. It it comes with its own, like, you know, constraints because working on your own games, you definitely have a lot more freedom, but it's, it's a ton of fun. Sure. So what are some of the, you know, Star Trek, we mentioned the White Wolf, you know. Now, if I recall, you've also done on um, the Stargate RPG. Yep. Uh, what are some of the other ones? Have you done My Little Pony? 
I did. Most recently, um, we just launched uh, the My Little Pony uh, Friendship is Magic core book. And that was really, like, it was a lot of fun to work on. Uh, to give context, my sister, Tina, um, who will probably be listening to this, huge, huge fan of My Little Pony. And okay. um, I remember, so this was like 10, 12 years ago, I'm going through our mom's attic because I was trying to find my Transformers because I had hoped that my Transformers might have survived. Sure. Uh, my, my mom was an um, elementary school teacher for over 31 years. So any toys that we didn't keep, if they got left at mom's house, became, you know, prizes for her kids if they did well. Sure. So, yeah, there was there are some classes that got some really cool beast wars and uh, transformers, energon figures. Sure. And, but I, I was trying to find them because I was really hoping, you know, cause you want your, you want your old toys. Uh, sadly, I didn't find mine, but I found Tina's old box of my little pony and my sister, who is a rock star, by the way, she, seeing her like just actually pick each pony out of the box and she kind of like hugged each one and it was so sweet and charming to see like you know like the pure love and joy that you have for your old toys and right. when i got the opportunity to work on my little pony i tried to remember that where it's like i was never one of those people that was going to just constantly like you know like crap on my little pony or things that weren't mine you know it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things where as you get older Oh, you know, when you get older, I know it gets easier to kind of be like, oh, that's gross. Why would I like that? Give me that more. used to be cool. Now it's not. Yeah. Like there were right. a lot of people who, when I said I was working on My Little Pony, they messaged me and said, oh, my condolences. That's got to be really awful. And I'm like, what? No, it's it's kind of It fun. sounds like a delightful project to work on. I don't know why you would think that would be awful. It, it plays to my strengths. It's a lot of puns. It's a lot of humor. And then it's a lot of just weird nonsensical animals that you just kind of say, no, no, there's a griffin here now. Be cool with it. Here's a dog that, you know, eats rocks for a living. Just be chill with it. Right. Uh, but it, working on My Little Pony was really great. And I got to draw upon several of my skill sets as well. Like um, uh, I've worked with kids. Um, I used to work in a museum. And um, I've also worked on a lot of kids' games. So it was really great being able to draw upon all of my strengths. And, and of course, we had a fantastic crew on this one. Andrew Peregrine, who is always amazing and always a lot of fun to work with. All of our playtesters who helped us, you know, figure out where the flaws were in the game. Uh, right. just, it, it, it was a lot of fun. Good. So what are some of the struggles you've had working on things like IPs? So if you ever get a chance to work on an IP, and this could be something as big as Star Trek or My Little Pony, mm-hmm. or something as small as recently I worked on Homeworld, you have to get used to hearing no. Like, that is the biggest thing that you have to get used sure. to hearing. And it can suck. Like, not to sugarcoat it, like, if you've worked all week on a draft, it's 10,000 words, you're pretty proud of it. But then they say, hey, we don't like the core concept behind this. I think we're, it goes against the brand. We need you to do it differently. And you just have to be able to say, okay, they want something else. That's They're the client. That's the IP. That's, that's how it works. It, yeah. it's it's. We always talk about how it's working in someone else's sandbox. But it really is. And you kind of have to follow the rules of the owner of the sandbox. Sure. 
So what is some of the, uh, what, what do you find enjoyable about that sandbox though? I mean, if the owner has rules, there must be a reason you, you kind of sort of keep coming back to this sort of job in game design, right? It can be limiting at times because, you know, like, like there, there are books that I've pitched for Star Trek that will never see the light of day. And for a lot sure. of reasons, it's never personal. And the people you work with, you know, they're not going to wake up in the morning and be like, man, I really hate Alan today. I'm going to tell Alan no three times before lunch. You've clearly never been in my house. <laughs> so with with this idea of this no, I guess we'd say, what what do you find to be part of the reason that this happens like when you're pitching a product, right? And they say, no, there, there's often a reason they're saying no. Is, is there some things you've learned that allow you to uh, overcome that, to move through that, things like that? that? That's a really good question. I think there's two things that really help me. One is always being prepared to, have a back and forth discussion about why they said no. But then the second thing is also trying to know your limits on what you can pitch anyways. To go with the second one first, like say I wanted to pitch a book for Star Trek and I wanted the book to be, you know, like I think the running gag I have with Jim Johnson is um, guns, Gorn and Warn. And it's, it's, it's care to explain that running gag. The running gag is essentially, uh, let's do a cool book about uh, a bunch of reptilian gangsters who try to rip off Morn. And uh, it's it's more, it's a palate cleansing joke. It's one of those things where it's a funny idea, and I bet I could get a thousand Trekkies, you know, before the end of the day, who would be like, yes, I want to see this book. This book will be great. Right. But there's a lot of other things in the background, too. Like, one, those thousand uh, Trekkies, they might be the only ones interested in the book. So I can't really justify going like making a whole book for just a thousand people. And the True, second one, not a, not a fiscally viable approach to making a product. Oh yeah, definitely. Like the, the people who are in like the developer seat, they always are the ones who have to be like, that is a great idea. Let me see if I can make it work. But they often are the ones that have to say no. And again, it's not because right. they, they hate you or anything. It's, or that they, th- they might even think the idea is really cool. But the problem is that the idea is just not, like you said, financially sound. And right. And you kind of want to, like, with IP-related products, you always want to pitch your A-game. And as funny right. as I could make that concept, I don't know if I could guarantee that that would sell really well or would be worth us not making another book. Sure. Because There's sort know, of a cost associated with product development, and you need to make sure you can recoup that cost. Oh, yeah. And right. We're not going to like suddenly release like, you know, because the books that Modiphius puts out, they're really nice quality. Um, but Modiphius is not going to release like, you know, an old, you know, like tattered journal, cheap, low quality paper version of, you know, Guns, Gorns and Morn. Because right. you know, even if that saved the money, that doesn't also fit with how they make the rest of their books. Okay. So when you are thinking about this, what is sort of the approach you take with pitching a product like when it you know a serious product perhaps we'll say i would say that 
when you do want to pitch a book that you believe in, I'm going to go with my process. This might not be the process that everybody else does. You're the one on the podcast, so that makes sense. (laughs) Well, I mean, more like, um, I know I've already said be prepared for no, but internally, you've got to be prepared for disappointment where, um, like I said, there's a dozen reasons why a book might not get off the ground. And they can be something as, you know, small as, oh, I don't think the market is right for this, or, hey, we're not going to release as many books this year due to a paper shortage, or it could also be, hey, I just had this conversation with the vice president of marketing, and he really says we're not going to do this book. And you have to be, you have to develop like, you know, that that kind of thick skin where you're able to just be like, hey, just because they told you no, it doesn't mean they don't like you. In this industry, I found that a lot of people that you work with will very quickly, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll try to reassure you and be like, hey, your idea was great. Just not this year, not this year. The second thing that you just kind of have to to do when you're pitching a product like this is, I know I've already said it before, but you've really got to bring your A game when it comes to pitching it. Like, like I said, the guns, Gorns, and Morn was just was a joke, and it's always going to be a joke because right. at this point, I don't really know if I could actually make that joke into a solid enough pitch for them to take seriously. But sure. just going back in time a little bit, um, like Shackleton Expanse. Or oh, right. Lower Decks, which which we I uh, just worked on. Yeah, Lower Decks was a. I I'd been pitching it for a while, um, and Jim was like, "Yeah, no, we're going to get to it eventually. You know, we'll see, we'll see how the show does." But Lower Decks was just one of those things where it's like, "What could we do with a book like that?" Because the show is great, but it's built around satire, and comedy is a really difficult medium to write in because absolutely. Oh yeah, because. By the time you get to like, you know, page 100 of, you know, just so many off the wall jokes, even the reader is going to be like, oh, yes, humorous. Hmm. Very funny. You've made uh, another joke. I understand. I used to do uh, stand up and uh, they always talk about how the last leg, uh, which is usually like the last 10, 15 minutes of a set is always the hardest because that's when you lose people the most. Because even if you've had them laughing the whole time, something just happens internally where you could be laughing for an hour and a half straight and then you're just, you're laughed out. And that was concerned with lower decks. But when I was talking to Jim about it and we were like, what would we cover? What, what would we like to see in the book? You need to be able to answer those questions and you don't need an answer for everything, but you should really have thought about a lot of important things, which is what's the market for it? Because it's not enough to say, hey, this is a Star Trek book. You should buy it. We live in an era where there's so many games to buy that, right. you know, I mean, uh, how many games do you have, Alan? You, have, you last When I saw your booth at Gen Con, there was a lot of games. I don't want to talk about it. Well, there's so many games out there for people to buy. And Absolutely. That, that can make it just so challenging on what to spend your money on. Because if there's five pies in front of you and you like pie, you're going to have a hard time picking which pie you want to eat. Unless you're, you know, a toddler, then I suppose you just put a hand in each one. Or an adult with intelligence, emotional decision-making like me, who would just eat all the pie. <laughs> that, that's the, the big takeaway I want people to get from, from this uh, interview, is this uh, pie is really good. But also, yeah, just be prepared for the big questions. Like, what's the market? Mm-hmm. What do you think the, the size of the book will be? What's the, the point of each chapter? Do you know what the chapters are going to be? 
and also have sure. your elevator pitch ready. Absolutely. So there is a, we'll say a dark side to working on IPs in that the popularity and fandom of the particular property might eclipse the talent of the people working on it. They become secondary to, you know, the IP. For example, if I'm being honest, as a large, as a big Star Trek fan, you put Star Trek on the RPG book, I'll buy it. It doesn't matter who's in the credits. Now, if I like it, will I look? Yes, because I work in the industry. But before that, did I look? No, not at all. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that's a, that's a problem in RPGs in general. But I think it's more pronounced with these RPGs that are based on intellectual property. Right. Do you ever feel like working on so many IPs has become a bit of a hindrance when it comes to promoting yourself? I realize this is a hard question, but uh, this is what we're talking about, right? So, well, no, um, that's really like that's a really good point. It's it sometimes does cause a little bit of like you know frustration where the book is more famous than the people who worked on it, sure. um, and that's for everybody from like artists, editors, layout people, and writers. It can sometimes be more frustrating where people are like, "Oh yeah, I just picked up Lower Decks. It's really, really good," and I'll be like, "Oh, I re- I worked on it. Oh, you did? Oh, I wasn't aware of that." And right. that, that can be frustrating because, you know, I would say that the emotionally healthy thing is to not let your own self-satisfaction get caught up on whether people know your work. Right. But I will say, like, the dark underside to all of this is that sometimes it's really, really nice when people do recognize your name. Absolutely. And, yeah, and it's, it's like I said, probably the, the smart answer would be, oh, just don't care about it. But I know, at least speaking for me, sometimes it's like, oh, man, that person said they really liked My Little Pony. And then they noticed my name was in it and they said they liked it even more. And I'm like, oh, my God, that this is a great feeling. I wish I could bottle up this feeling just so I could savor it later on. Right. And I feel like with indie games, especially with a lot of people who go out of their way to get indie games, um, they definitely know more about the creators um, because... Uh It not just small scale book to a large scale book. It really is just more of a they really like the design. They're really like engaged in it, and then of sure. course you know they see the names and they're like, oh no, I I want to follow this person's work. Right. It becomes it becomes sort of a part of the process, as it were, mm-hmm. to follow that person's work because you like it and you want to support it, which can be a part that I think is lacking in IP driven material you know if i like if i like uh we'll say marvel for example as a marvel fan it it can be harder to justify chasing down the latest marvel rpg because it's a marvel rpg and it's sort of the attitude of it's always going to be there in some form or another can i don't want to say cheapen it but it can cause you to treat it more cheaply maybe as a consumer i think that's actually fair where it's like like uh, I I played the brief like playthrough of the um the Marvel RPG at Gen Con. It's a wonderful game. Um, I love it. Matt Forbeck did a great job on it. But it, I do agree with your with what you said. Where it's kind of like you know, I'm saying this not to cheapen you know the Marvel RPG. Right. It's kind of like it's like the Outback Steakhouse of RPGs where it's good food. A lot of like your favorite um dishes are there. But it's also kind of like, hey, do you want to try Outback, which is kind of the same city to city, or do you want to try like that corner bistro that you passed when you're the cool, the cool local local place has been talked about on the Food Network, right? 
Yeah. And that's just kind of like, I think that's a good way to kind of sum it up where there's nothing wrong with, with, you know, working on big IPs or the big books, but sometimes the best meals you can have are at these small hole in the walls. Like um, at Gen Con this year, we ate at a Thai restaurant, which had like mismatched plates. It looks like the seats came from like another restaurant. (laughs) So the seats were all beat up. And teeny tiny, you're all smushed together in this tiny little restaurant that's on the circle in downtown Indianapolis. But it was like the best Thai food I've had in years. Just wonderful food. I I appreciate the invite for Thai food. That would have been delicious. Well, next next year for sure. No, I will reject your invite now next year. So we'll see if I'm even there. So... (laughs) Okay, so we we talked a lot about IP, but you do other stuff than just big IP work. You do a lot of indie press work as well, including your game, Good Heckin' Doggos. They're heckin' good doggos. Oh, did I? My apologies. Well, they can be good heckin' doggos and heckin' good doggos, and I won't say a bad word about them. (laughs) So, uh, heckin' good doggos. What is the... now, a lot of games that feature you playing as anthropomorphized or uh, personified animals tend to take the, we'll say the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles approach, where you are a little more humanoid in approach. They find some justification, right? I'm thinking things like a Pugmire uh, and its equivalent, uh, I forget the name of the cat, mo- the Monarchy's a Mao, right? Mm-hmm. Things like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles RPG, stuff like that. But in, in Heckin' Good Doggos, you're just a dog. Yeah. So what what makes that role-playing experience interesting? Because that's not something I would have gone. There's a lot of interesting drama and narrative there to unpack. So Heck of Good Doggos, which was a ton of fun to work on with Wedding Games. I would say that it's... Okay, I know you know this about me, but for our audience at home, I, you know, always make up tall tales about my dog. Um, he's a Sheltie named Dewey. The tallest and, tales about the shortest dog. Hey, he is Admiral of the Navy. <laughs> he was uh, a naval aviator, and they based the character of Bart Mancuso from Hunt for Red October off of him and his naval record. Alan's, for the people at home, Alan is looking at the camera like, seriously, you told the stories about your dog's fake military record? <laughs> Stolen Valor, folks. (laughs) But, um, so yeah, we've talked, the Monarchies of Mao and Pugmire are great. Love those games. This is a game where you are more dog-like, uh, than, than the other ones where in in like, uh, Pugmire, you know, they've got hands and they can wear clothes and can do all this. In, uh, Heckin' Good Doggos, you have paws. You occasionally have a bandana. And you can occasionally have like a toy or something, which might help you with like opening doors or distracting people with your ball. But that's kind of the fun of it where the fun of it is, you know, you're, you're like kind of like the video game stray where you are an animal. You, I would say you have a lot more emotional awareness than, than, you know, like you're able to talk with your fellow dogs. Um, so, and you could sneak in whatever vernacular you want as a dog. But you go on incredible adventures, and the base game for Heckin' Good Doggos is you exploring mysteries. You're trying to protect your friend, which is you know in Heckin' Good Doggos, most dogs have like their special friend or families that you know they keep an eye out for. And then we created a whole bunch of kind of like just like internal supplements to the game, where 
One of them is a Supernatural-based one. Brandon and I are huge fans of... Now I'm blanking on the name of the graphic novel. It's a graphic novel from Dark Horse Comics. It's about a bunch of dogs who are also paranormal investigators. I'm going to look that up later. It's a great comic. Hopefully I've given you enough to find it. But we've also done things like, what if there were superheroes? What if it was, you know, um, in medieval times? It's, you know, it's going on these crazy adventures that are just so much more fun. And trying to solve mysteries when you don't have thumbs, which I don't think a lot of people realize is like the game changer. Uh, (laughs) A bunch of players in one of the games we ran at Gen Con got stuck in a room because none of them could open a door. That sounds like childishly frustrating, but actually from a role-playing scenario, like it was great. Because at one point they built a human trapeze of dogs to try to get them through the door. And the players ended up one of them failed their check and the whole pyramid fell over and knocked over the door. That's, that's quite the interesting story. So I, I wish I had sat down and played this at Gen Con. That sounds like it might've been quite the experience. Yeah. And, and some indie games, you know, that's just, that's the appeal. Like one of my favorite games that you've done is, is your Baywatch style game, which actually was like a ton of fun. Like, I wasn't a big fan of Baywatch, but playing the game was really great because I it didn't make me want to go out and watch the show, but it's kind of like, oh, so I'm like fighting street punks on a beach who might be smuggling in drugs for the mob. This is actually really cool considering all I have is that weird red floaty device as a weapon. Yes, the uh, doing the job of the of the police for no reason other than that's what we're doing here. And being the Hoff. And and being the Hoff, yes. I suppose that's a key component of this idea. I think that's so, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, please. Okay, I think that's one of the great things about indie games, too. Like, So if I try to pitch a game of Stargate to someone, and they're a fan mm-hmm. of Stargate, they already know what to expect. Sure. It's a military team fighting aliens, protecting Earth, saving the day. If I pitch a game to you, like, heckin' good doggos, like, even if I give you just, like, the briefest, like, you know, overlay of what it's going to be, you don't really know what to expect in, in a positive right. way. Right. Absolutely. So do you find that to be freeing, or do you find that to be hindering at times as somebody who works on a lot of these IPs? Because I imagine that it can be a little bit of both. It is a bit of both. Like, after you've worked on a bunch of like IP games for a while, you know, you, you, you love what you do, but you sometimes do miss that freedom of being able to just say, Hey, I'd really like to, I want to see this in a game. Right. And you know, that would never fly in like my little pony or something. But if you make your own indie game, you know, then you create the world. It's sure. basically, you know, playing in someone else's sandbox and then just opening up your own sandbox Maybe it's smaller than the other one, but you get to be the one that's like, hey, castles are going to look like this. You know, I want the sand to look like this. Uh, Anybody could sit down to play this, you know, in this sandbox, you know, stuff like that. So if we were to maybe take this metaphor a little bit farther here, well, you could justify something like Heck and Good Doggos and Star Trek, you know, via the holodeck. 
it, you would say it's probably not the right place. Yes. I'm not sure I understood the question. I'm sorry. Oh, sure. So you would say that even if you can put this experience inside a licensed game, there's no guarantee that it's actually the place you should put that experience. Ah, well, yeah, because now I get it. You could have your Star Trek guys go into the holodeck and be like, oh, you now look like dogs now. You're all going to play a game like dogs. Right. But that might not be. That would be theoretically in theme with Star Trek. That is true. I was just thinking of the episode where um, Tom Paris and Captain Janeway get turned into giant salamanders. It's in Voyager. It's like season five. It's called Threshold. <laughs> but um, as much as amusing as that would sound for like a session of Star Trek Adventures, it, it's also not what people sit down for. I mean, to go back to the food metaphor we used earlier, if you're sitting down at Pizza Hut, you want a Pizza Hut style pizza. You Absolutely. Don't, you don't want the chef to be like, hey, I know you ordered pepperoni. But I brought you this, like, you know, specialty sausage I made at home on the specialty bread. And uh, the sauce is also something that I've been messing with. And it could be like the best pizza you've ever had, or it could just be a good tasting pizza that does not scratch the itch that you were wanting. It's interesting you bring up that example because to me, that would be exactly what I want out of that. Yeah, that see. is as 100% the experience I love in RPGs. Not saying one's more valid than the other or anything, but. Just what you're describing to me sounds almost ideal, maybe. And yeah, that's so hard to predict. Like, you know, because you're not just, you know, it's not just like, you know, a static game master and then the players as one monolithic entity. Right. It's the game, what the game master wants from the game, what player one wants from the game, player two, player three, player four. Exactly. And you might be like, oh, this is the best pizza I've ever had. I mean, we should eat this pizza all the time. Right. And I might just be like, oh, I was just really, really wanting that Pizza Hut pizza. I, I really hate mushrooms, right? Like, yeah, there's a thousand reasons why it might not be the right fit. And it or could a situation. Be, yeah. And it could be that maybe there's like a mushroom out there that you would secretly like. But that seems unlikely. Well, I know, but I mean, like, it, it's just like, you know, you know, you don't like most mushrooms. And I said, hey, trust me on this mushroom dish and you've tried almost every mushroom in the world, it's kind of a hard risk for me to be like, no, Alan, you'll love this. And then, you know, you sit down and go, this was good. Still don't like mushrooms. Can I remove mine from my pizza? Kennedy and I have known each other for many years at this juncture. And I can assure you that if Kennedy said, Alan, you will like this, it will be good. I would promptly ignore that statement because there's a not 0% chance I am just going to be trolled and fed something like black licorice. Oh, no. Never, never that. I hate that. But also, no, I'm nice. You know, I just never get to choose where we eat at major conventions anymore. There's a reason for that, dear <laughs> listener. And it's because all of those decisions have been bad. You give a bunch of game designers food poisoning once and... <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. Then you are banned from restaurant choices. That is the rule. So... You know, we've been talking for a bit um, about this. What are some of the things you've got coming out that have you really excited? Uh, I just got announced as a stretch goal on, um, oh man, so when in games, it is Garbage and Glory. What is uh, that about? Wedding games, uh, I really love how they just make these really nice, tight games that just, they, they go 
pedal to the floor for the concept they're doing. Garbage and Glory is a game where you play as raccoons, possums, pretty much night critters. And it's all about like little like late night animal heists from dumpsters outside of restaurants or exploring, you know, just like, you know, the local neighborhood and trying to um, evade like animal control for another night. It's, it's, the artwork is just amazing. I mean, yeah, like some of the uh, cl- playable classes in the game. One of them is um, um, uh, Sticky Fingers, which is a raccoon that's just really good at grabbing things and just always has a place to keep them on them. Uh, there's also like the, the the Dumpster Diviner, which I guess is kind of similar to what we would imagine a uh, cleric would be. And the picture is a raccoon wearing like a McDonald's fry thing on his head. And he's holding up a little um, croquet mallet. It's really cool. And I'm, I'm honored to be on the project. Brandon and Matthew over at Wedding Games. Um, just I've known him for years and it's fun. And other things I've got coming out. Uh, we just launched uh, Star Trek Adventures Lower Decks and the Captain's Log. Lower Decks is based off the show, and that was so much fun getting to not just reference Star Trek, but make jokes about it. Like, I'm extremely envious of the writers for the cartoon show, because that would be a dream job for me. Right. And they did it so well. Yep. I have really enjoyed Lower Decks. I found it a very fun and exciting show to watch, and I, I really enjoyed sort of the gentle, loving lapooning of something else I love, Right. Yeah, and uh, did you see the crossover on Strange New Worlds? I did, yes. So that was, it was so good. That was perfect. And it, I immediately messaged Jim. We talk about in-jokes and books that will never get published. But I immediately messaged Jim, and I'm like, can I write the 10,000-year Nausicaan Empire book? <laughs> yeah. Of so, all... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. I was going to say, of all species to build time portals, it was the Nausicans? <laughs> I mean, that tracks. That, uh, so here's, here's a, uh, a question I think you will find challenging on, on a lot of levels. If you could work on any one IP, what would it be? That I haven't worked on? No, you can pick one. If you could only work on one IP going forward, let's say, let's be more clear. Like if you had to limit yourself, so it can be one you worked on. That's that. Hey, that is hard. I'm thinking. I don't want to give up Star Trek. Star Trek's just a lot of fun. Uh, I'll go with Star Trek. Oh man, that's that is really hard. It's not just that I've got I've done like the most work on Star Trek. It's just that, to me personally, growing up a big fan of Star Trek, it's you know, if I could keep working on that, you know, forever, then I would. I'll see. You know, uh, I uh, I'm sure Modiphius will have you know Star Trek for a long, long time, so I get to work on it. You know, for many, many years to come. But yeah, man, just choosing one. Oof. You definitely pick the hot seat questions. I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm surprisingly insightful sometimes. It's my deep secret. Is there I something you're working on that you can talk about that you're very excited for besides Trash Panda, the grave robbing RPG? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the grave robbing RPG, but that would be a lot of fun. I, 
I mean, trash is the grave of modern society's detritus, so I feel like it counts. That is true. I remember I took an anthropology class back in college, and the professor even said we mostly go through junkyards. Like, Middle Ages and classic era junkyards. Yeah? Uh, Stuff that I can talk about that I'm working on. Uh, You're excited for. Uh, I recently um, got brought on to Werewolf 5th Edition. I'm really excited to work on that. I've been a huge werewolf fan uh, since I was a teenager, which was a not considerable amount of years ago. I'm old. No but, uh It's so cool. I love all the work that the previous teams have done. Um, and I'm just excited to get to um, explore the, the... It's the same universe, but slightly different. Right. I... I it's fun being able to approach something that you know that you've known for for like twenty years, and at the same time you get to see the new universe. And I kind right. of what what happens next. And then um, something else that I'm working on that I've been working on for years, and Alan, you know, you've helped me with it a lot. Um, is pulsars, and it's kind of in my 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 white whale project where uh, right when I think I'm super close to it being done something happens and then I just have, um, I have to relook at it every couple of years, but Pulsars is that game where I think it's going to be incredible once it comes out. And um, I've already got the art for it. I know you've seen the art for it. I have. Yeah. Uh, it's for the audience at home. Pulsars is kind of like my tribute to like, to like cosmic sci-fi and cosmic superheroes. Um, huge fan of Green Lantern, huge fan of Guardians of the Galaxy, like all incarnations of it. When Annihilation came out, I was in college and I was reading that instead of Civil War, uh, which came out at the same time. And right. also, so in Pulsar, you play as a member of the Pulsar Corps and the galaxy is at war this great enemy has broken through in the northern part of the, of the galaxy and has slowly been encroaching on other worlds. And you play a pulsar, which is a peacekeeper who's given a suit of essentially celestial advanced power armor. So you're given something that can essentially take on like starships and you'll win. But the game's much more than just, you know, hey, here's superpowers, go and, and be a little chaos goblin and fighting space analogs for Nazis. It's a game where, like, when I went to college, 9-11 happened. And a lot of my friends uh, got, they either entered the service or they got called up. And uh, I have a lot of friends who they went over to Iraq and Afghanistan. And they came back and the experience really changed them. And the number one thing that they talk about is how, uh, like, one friend of mine uh, was a tank commander. And they talked about how you're in a multi-million dollar war machine that is pretty much unbeatable on the battlefield. And yet you come home and you're having to deal with all of like the PTSD from the war. And Pulsars is about not just acknowledging the stressful things that happened to you. It's not just about, hey, you went to war, you now have you know PTSD. It's more about trying to give the power back to the people who struggled. Who, who like they came back, they're trying to reintegrate back into, you know, the so-called normal life for those at home. I air quotes around that. And it's all about trying to give your character not just a reason for them to, to keep fighting in this universe, 
but also for you to be like, hey, it's okay to sometimes feel completely powerless, even though you are a one-man wrecking machine. And that was the big inspiration behind it. Okay. Well, that's really fascinating. I'm really excited to see see what that comes out looking like, uh, especially because you've been working on it so long. I think there's a lot of intent and passion there. Uh, So that's great. So we're getting near the end of our time. So I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions I warned you about. (laughs) But before I do that, do you have any questions for me? No, um, other than just, you know, keep being awesome. Oh, did you? You have to phrase it like a question. Like a question. Did you enjoy at Gen Con being on that that show? Oh, Gen Con TV, which I was on? Yeah. Yes, it was it was an interesting. It was interesting. I've never been on Gen Con's marketing platform before. So that was at least aside from, you know, the casual mention or something, to my knowledge, we've never been featured. And so it was fun. It was interesting. And I really, I really enjoyed the long-term opportunity to give my friend Richard extensive amounts of grief about it. So I will continue to do so. So Richard, if you're listening, I was on Gen Con TV and you were not, which makes me a bigger deal than you this year. And I was in the audience cheering him on. Ooh, yes. So if you had to pick three RPGs that form sort of the core of your design element, what would that be? So I think the one that was the biggest like motivator for me to really want to create my own stuff was Werewolf the Apocalypse because that was like the first RPG I actually played in like a campaign for um, or a chronicle as it's known in that system. And that was one of the things where I'm like, hey, you know, what if there were werewolves, but they weren't guy in werewolves? What if there were werewolves who did this? Maybe I'll just write this up. And I found that file recently um, in my, on my hard drive and it was terrible, but it was kind of cool to see how that motivated me to, to try to make my own stuff. Another one, which I really appreciate it because of just how out there the setting was, at least for me when I discovered it at the time, was Orc World by uh, John Wick. It's not just one of those games that flips the script. Um, it's a game where you play as an orc. You are, um, your entire nation has been conquered by humans. And you were trying to hold on to your cultural values and you're depicted in media as these savages who literally like will stab babies, but you're actually a deeply spiritual people and you just want your freedom. It was one of the first games that I read where I'm like, Hey, I don't just have to be like, you know, generic fantasy realm. Orcs are bad. Goblins are bad. Elves are good and perfect. It was a game that showed me that it's not just things could be different. It's that things could be different and done well. You know, it's not just, hey, it's the Mirror Universe episode and orcs are the good guys and humans are the bad guys. It was more of a, here's the motivations behind everybody. And there were good humans in the book and there were there were bad orcs. But I just liked how it went deeper. And it was like, yeah, there are bad orcs, but definitely not all of them. And then I'd probably say the one game, one game. Uh, that real the third game that really inspired me to not just learn more about game design, but to do better and how I approach things is actually thanks to uh, Aloy LaSanta. And that was mermaid adventures. Okay. Where Aloy, when he pitched me this game, uh, when we were working together, I admit at the time, I was like, I don't know if there's a market for this. I mean, this it's kind of like a little kid's game, but I, are there a mm-hmm. lot of little kids who game? And thanks to Aloy, I learned that yes, there are. And even at age seven, they would like games that take them seriously. Like they want games that are fun, 
but they also want games that are not just you're a mermaid let's go on a splashtastic adventure sure and it was like hey you know we're not gonna have a game where you're murder hobos you know killing like octopi in the ocean floor uh, but no, it's like, hey, they'd like a game that actually challenges them, makes them think, and makes them feel special. And right. thanks to them, that encouraged me. Now, when I sit down to make a game, it's not just enough, like with My Little Pony. I mean, My Little Pony has that established IP, but you still want all fans of all ages to feel like, oh, they can have fun at this and not have it be, you know, condescending or patronizing, or even if you have the most benevolent intentions not just phoning it in and being like, here's Twilight Sparkle, here's Rainbow Dash. They're fighting, I don't know, the, the bugbear. Go have fun. And it's like, no, that's, they want a game where they have mystery and excitement and humor and also just to be taken seriously. Sure. Interesting. Well, I think that's fantastic, and I appreciate that insight. Uh, and then the final question, the one that always trips everyone up, what is one question you've never been asked in an interview that you would like to be asked? I came up with like five really goofy answers, but okay. well, you can give me a goofy one if you like. No, I guess it's I'm gonna make uh, you answer it though, so choose carefully. I guess the question though, that the serious question is, what does it take to keep working in the gaming industry? Not just breaking in, but to keep working in it. Sure, I think that's something we don't talk about a lot. So let's talk about it. What does it take? One, recognizing the signs of burnout which even as a 20 year veteran, I, there are times when I'm just mad and I kind of want to like, just throw the laptop because it's, the words aren't coming out. And sure. my partner Kendra now has recognized the signs being like, I think you need to stop writing for the night. And I'll be like, no, no, I've got 2000 more words in me. I can get this done. It's like, no, you're, you're fried. You're just hurting yourself at this point. And it won't be, it won't meet your expectations. You've got to, you know, step back for a second. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, which obviously once you're too deep into burnout, you really don't recognize it's going on. Right. And burnout hits every writer at some point. Like you could be someone where you only release small scale indie games, maybe one every couple of years, but you can get burned out just as much as someone who does 20,000 words a week. Probably not the same level of burnout, but similar types of burnout. Sure. And like, I, I know you, you're a machine. Like, you know, you, again, for the audience, uh, Alan was like, yeah, I woke up early this morning and I wrote 6,000 words for a new RPG. And I'm like, I just got up and made coffee. Who are you? <laughs> I would, I would like to be clear that I did not write 6,000 words for an RPG. I thought that's what you said at Gen Con. Oh yes. At Gen Con. I thought you meant today, which now that I think about it might be proving your point. Well, I am right as always. <laughs> Actually, I'm right at the time when we were walking, and I was like, let me just pull my, my card out of my wallet. I somehow pulled out the whole wallet, dropped it, simultaneously kicked it for no reason. Because I am that level of disaster. But um, I guess the other thing about staying in the industry, um, recognizing burnout, but also... You're probably going to have more uh, defeats than successes. Like, even for me, whenever I get a rejection email, even if it is the most politely phrased rejection email, it hurts. Like, and, you know, because you get your expectations up. And I even do my best to be like, now, Kennedy, you know, they're probably full on writers. They're probably not going to be able to have room for you. 
but I'll get that rejection. And the rejection will be like, hey, we're, we're the cutoff was like a month ago. We have all the writers we need, but we'll keep you in mind in the future. And internally, I still been like, man, what did I do wrong? You know, so so close yet something went wrong. Yeah, and it's it's never personal, right? And it's 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 hard. And after a while, it really it it builds up because you 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 want to look at like you know your successes, but you're always going to look back at like you know the defeats. You'll be like, oh man, oh, I really wish I could have been on this property or this game, and. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Like, I didn't know if I was ever going to get to work on Werewolf, and now I get to. So, right. I mean, uh, I think that's a great insight for folks who are trying to uh, figure out if the game industry is right for them and oh, if they want how they want to participate in it. And the third and most important one um, it's okay to take breaks. Like, yes. a lot of this is supposed to be fun. Like, I know for some of us, we've made our careers around this. But a lot of times, you know, with I've always felt that with game design, there should always be some element of like fun in making the game. And if after a certain point, it, you're just miserable and tired, you can always take like a year off. I mean, obviously not in the middle of a deadline, but you can always just take a break and come back in. Like, and that's super essential. Like, if you know that like December is going to be a hard month for you, Maybe you lost a loved one during that month or whatever. If you know that December is not going to be the month where you're going to be on your A game and you just wish you didn't have like a deadline at the back of your head, take mm-hmm. it off. Play, play a new game. You know, it's right. And at least that's why I think helps. Sure. I mean, that's all. I think that's all great insight. And, you know, like you said, you've been doing this for 20 years and it's important to know that what works for you might not work for everybody all the time. Right. But there's at least something to be learned or tried from folks who have experienced that burnout and been down that road. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kennedy, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a real pleasure having you. And I really appreciate you making the time to be here. Um, if folks want to find you or support you online, what's the best way to do so? So um, you can find me over on uh, Twitter. I know it's X now, but you can find me there at JK myth. Although I've also migrated mostly over to uh, blue sky where I'm triceratops. Oh, I'm there too. I should find you. I, you know what? I, uh, somebody had already taken my screen name and, that I normally use, and I was like, oh, I need one. Um, dinosaur. Favorite dinosaur go. I, mean, um, I think favorite dinosaur is always in a reasonable replacement for any sort of thing you might need. And then um, you can usually find me just hopping around Discord as JK Myth. Um, or, um, yeah, and there's also, yeah, that's pretty much it. If you follow me on Facebook, I guarantee you it'll be less like game design and more random memes. But I do talk about game design from time to time. I can I can vouch for that. Amazing. It, make your life better. Um, that's a matter of opinion, like everything in the world. <laughs> so, folks, I am grateful for my guest Kennedy today, who has come on and, and shared a lot of insightful wisdom. Uh, and I want to say thanks again. Uh, if you want to support Kennedy, I would recommend it. They do great work. Um, and I know hearing about the work and hearing that people enjoy it is one of their great joys in the game industry. So, folks, my name is Alan Barr, and this has been Radio Free RPG.